Good evening, friends. It's great to be here tonight. Just as a friendly warning and word of encouragement, this evening's service may be different than your typical Good Friday service, or at least the sermon, especially. Often our circle uses this service in particular to highlight the depravity of man, to show the necessity of a Savior, and it's something I've done many a time for Oak Hill on Good Friday services in the past. But tonight, we're going to focus our eyes quite a bit higher than usual. Considering our fallenness, it sure is a worthwhile adventure, but it should be a regular habit of the Christian to do so, not just on a holiday. So this evening, we'll take a brief look at two primary texts, one in the book of Hebrews and the other in the book of Revelation. We're going to consider the lamb who was worthy to not just die, but to receive the ancient scroll and live. To begin, go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Here, the author explains that there's a difference that's taken place here between the old covenant that God had with his people and the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated. That's actually a fulfillment of the old covenant. On verses 1 through 10, we're provided a very brief explanation of the Old Testament tabernacle sacrificial system for sins. Try to say that three times fast. If you want more on that, you can review several dozen chapters in the Old Testament about how that worked. Even the author here in Hebrews didn't want to get bogged down in the details. Look at verse 5, the second half of verse 5. He says, of these things, we can't even speak in detail right now. Now, Briefly here, let me read these first 10 verses. Now, the first covenant also had regulations for ministry in an earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was set up. And in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Most Holy Place. It had the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. <clears throat> the cherubim of glory were above the Ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. With these things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly performing their ministry, but the high priest alone enters but once a year, the second room, and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. Briefly here, the author is reminding the readers of the reality of a sacrifice for sin. The Old Testament priests had to offer special sacrifices throughout the year for various celebrations and remembrances. The one in view here is the Day of Atonement. That's the special sacrifice spoken of in Leviticus 23. The point of the author in these verses is that the Old Testament priests had to offer a sin sacrifice every year, year after year, because no particular sacrifice was good enough to pay for all their sins. In fact, even that yearly sacrifice on the Day of Atonement only covered some sins. Notice there, it says those done unintentionally, not all sin. See verse 7b. You can read more about that in Leviticus 4 if you're interested later. So every year, 
the priest used to go into the sanctuary, offering up blood on behalf of the people and himself for the sins that they committed unintentionally. What about the deliberate ones? Sin committed on purpose. The answer is simple, but it's hard. Numbers 15.30 states that sin committed on purpose indicates a person who reviles the Lord and will be cut off from his people. In other words, sinning on purpose resulted in the revocation of covenant blessing and the relinquishing of airship. Now we come to verse 11, Hebrews chapter 9. Now real quickly, I want to make a note here about the word but. Now buts in scripture, particularly in the New Testament, they're often used for excitement. Consider Titus 3, 3 through 7. It says, we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. How about Ephesians 2? Many of you know that one. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. So too, here in Hebrews 9, 11, after recounting the previous way of atoning for unintentional sin during the tabernacle period, the author states, but Christ has appeared. But Christ has arrived. And he didn't need to enter that most holy place over and over and over again because he was a worthy sacrifice once and for all. The next few verses there in the text extol the worthiness of the blood of Jesus Christ, God's own son, who is incomparable to even the purest of earth's creation that could be offered for any kind of sacrifice. And this purification from Christ is not just for our flesh. The Old Testament sacrifices were, but they couldn't even cover the conscience. Look back at verse 9. It says, the sacrifice from the priest only covered unintentional sins. Those are actions, really. Still, those sacrifices, guess what? They couldn't even cover the sins. Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These earthly sacrifices could barely, barely cover unintentional sin. Surely they couldn't cover the conscience. Of note here is the reality that the Old, Old Testament system, it can only attempt to cover a person's deeds. And there's a lot of sin that's committed. Meanwhile, their conscience is left without an entire or complete purification. Now, much more can be said about the conscience. If you have questions regarding that kind of theology, I'd be more than glad to discuss with you separately. We have to move along, though. So to summarize, the sacrifice of Jesus is supremely better because, first, he only needed to offer himself once, not, not yearly. Two, he covers fully not just sinful actions done unintentionally, but all sin. All sin, even cleansing the conscience of the worshiper. And three, he did all of that in order that we may serve the living God, as was the goal of creation, according to Genesis 1, all the way through Revelation 22. 
that creation is to worship and serve the living God. Now here's where tonight's brief exposition gets really exciting. Look at verse 15. There's this new covenant in Christ that's being explained as it inaugurated by his death. Then in verse 16, we see mention of a will, a covenant and a will. Now here's why this is interesting. In the Greek, the same word, diatheke, is used for both covenant and will. The word carries both meanings, so context is key. There is a switch in translation here in both the CSB and the ESV. So NASB ears, I'm sorry, yours gets it wrong. There is indeed a switch in meaning in verses 16 and 17, and then it changes back to covenant, not will, in verse 18. Verses 16 and 17 emphasize that a typical will is dependent upon the death of the one whose will is represented. In other words, you can't open the will of somebody who's still alive. True? And there has to be proof of death. Today, we have death certificates. It would be fraudulent to inaugurate the will of a living person. For the remainder of chapter 9, we have some incredible imagery of what Christ did once and for all entering heaven, appearing for us as our sacrifice for all sin. And the chapter closes with great hope, great hope of his second return, not to bear sin that time, but to fully complete the work of the high priest, to come back out of the most holy place, signifying that the sacrifice was acceptable to God. Now, if this isn't wonderful enough, we're going to close our time today looking at Revelation 5. Uh, Go ahead and turn there. I am getting over a cold. Sometimes my voice does crack, I guess, even without a cold. At least I have an excuse tonight. Revelation 5. Now, often the book of Revelation is either too scary and difficult for believers to study, or they become too infatuated and misled with the imagery. It doesn't need to be either one of those extremes. We need to bear in mind that John received these visions to help display for readers like us today some of the heavenly things that words alone could not do justice Think of these visions as dreams, where in the Old Testament, symbolic imagery was used to convey meaning, such as in the case of Joseph and Daniel, Ezekiel, interpreting dreams and visions from God. These visions in Revelation are no more and no less important than the rest of all Scripture. All Scripture is beneficial, profitable, and should be studied well in its context. So here in Revelation 5, we pick up after chapter 4. John has a vision of the throne in heaven where the Almighty, God the Father, sits. Here in 5.1, John notices that the Almighty has a scroll in his right hand with writing on the front and on the back. You know what's interesting about uh, about that fact, particularly the scroll with writing on the front and back? In ancient times, paper was very scarce. It wasn't common like it is today. They didn't use margins, and they used every bit of paper they had. That's why reading the ancient Greek scrolls is difficult for us today. No punctuation, no paragraph separators, no little, you know, modifiers for this is the section you're in, Jesus died. Nothing like that. That wasn't there. Continuous writing from the New Testament writers who use every bit of their available resource to bless the readers under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's something more specific, though, to this statement about the scroll. Writing on front and back was still rare. It signified official papers. A property deed, perhaps, papers for divorce, perhaps, or even the will of a deceased one. For the writing 
displayed on both sides showed someone without opening the seals that it was indeed what the owner claimed it to be. They couldn't open the document without breaking the seals, so to prove its legitimacy, they would write on both sides, so even a casual investigation of that document would prove its origin and content. Now, a will for the deceased would have been sealed so that it wouldn't have been tampered with until the person actually died. The Romans would actually seal their wills one roll at a time. I brought paper up here. I don't know how well it's going to work because I couldn't find double-sided, so I'm having to do two here. But they would literally roll it and then seal it. First seal, boom. Second seal, roll it again, boom. Third seal, boom. They would keep doing that. Obviously, their paper was longer than this. This scroll that you see here in, Re in Revelation 5 was sealed seven times, which is God's number of completion. Good Bible students. In verse 2, a mighty angel looks for someone worthy to open this scroll. Now, typically, this would be a surviving spouse or heir of the one having died, if it indeed is a will for the dead. Now, consider that John knew Greek culture. He knew about death wills, and he certainly knew of Jesus Christ as the one who died for our sin and on our behalf. So when we see in verse 3 that no one is found worthy to open the will, and then John weeps and weeps in verse 4, we can understand his extreme anticipation. He wants Jesus to appear so badly. He knows that his king, his friend, his beloved, is the only one worthy for that scroll. Have you ever been so heartbroken in a situation, perhaps in the midst of the loss of a loved one, that you earnestly desired for that heartache to end and just be present with Jesus? The anticipation here of John is even more severe because he's waiting for the cosmic reality of Hebrews 9.24, Jesus entering heaven on our behalf to unfold. Then hope arrives in verse 5. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the promised Messiah, Christ. Jesus has conquered sin and death and is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. But when John looks, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. Not just any lamb, one like a slaughtered lamb. Now, though he's powerful, those seven horns signify perfect power. Though he's all-knowing, those seven eyes are perfect knowledge of all things. He still bears the scars of sacrifice. Appearing like a slaughtered lamb signified that the death was real. The slaughtered lamb authenticated the death of the one for whom this will, this scroll, is owed. The lamb is not weak. The lamb does not lack in any way. But the lamb bears the scars of a blood sacrifice. And this one, like a slaughtered lamb, goes and he takes the scroll, the will of death and the inheritance of all things, out of the hand of the almighty God. And what happens when the lamb does that? The whole audience before the throne fall down and worship before the one who is worthy. And they begin a new song. Look at the text beginning in verse 9. The lamb is worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because he was slaughtered. And he purchased people, all kinds of people, for God by his blood. Then in verse 12, we see what the lamb is worthy of receiving. Really, what the scroll signifies. All creatures testify that the lamb is worthy of power 
and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, is there anything of which the Lamb is not worthy? Jesus is not only the perfect sacrifice for all sins, but he's also the worthy Lamb and the heir deserving of that scroll. And though he died, he also lives. So he's not just the payment for sin, but he's the recipient of the inheritance of his own death. That scroll seen by John in a vision in Revelation 5, sitting at the right hand of God, is what all of creation longed for. The will of the deceased in Hebrews 9.16. The plan of God unfolding for the ultimate redemption that could only be accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ, the righteous lamb. And the response of the redeemed, the response of those who worship by the Spirit of God is to cry out about the worthiness of that slaughtered lamb. For if he had not been slaughtered, that scroll would never be opened. And that scroll inaugurates the coming kingdom of God, which will replace all that has fallen. That scroll begins the final part of God's plan to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. That one, that one person could even be worthy of opening that will. That's overwhelming for all of creation. Now, because of this scroll, this will, it doesn't just signify his death, but it also signifies the life of Jesus. Both his life and his death made him worthy to open the scroll. Perfect obedience to the Father in his life and perfect holy blood offered for all sin in his death. By his death and by his life, we too die and live. Romans 6, we died with him in our sin in order to be raised in newness of life, united in, de in a death like him, united in a resurrection like his. We've been crucified with him that sin may be brought to nothing, and because of his death and our death in his likeness, we've been set free from sin. So we too must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, John wept and wept, longing in anticipation for mere moments, waiting for the worthy lamb to take the scroll from the hand of the Almighty. And when he was pointed to the lion, he saw the lamb, the one that had to die that we may live. Like the incredible living creatures listed there in Revelation 5, the 24 elders, the angels, and the countless redeemed. May we extol the worthiness of Jesus, not just in song, but by our very service to the slaughtered lamb who is powerfully able to open that deed of death reserved only for him and to secure an incorruptible inheritance for all the saints called by God according to his good pleasure and his good will. In your thoughts tonight, remember that the lamb will always bear the scars of his sacrifice, but more importantly, that the lamb is worthy to open that scroll, which was reserved only for a perfect death that pays for all sin. We're overwhelmingly, exceedingly, incredibly, and magnificently blessed beyond any and all comprehension to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God because of the slaughtered lamb who is worthy. So I invite you now to pray with me as we continue to fix our eyes on Jesus, the lamb who is worthy in our worship service tonight.
Lord God Almighty, what can we say in response to the wonderful truth that your word conveys? But amen and amen. Let it be. May the sacrifice of your son, the slaughtered lamb of God who is worthy, may King Jesus become more sweet and more honored in our lives each and every day. According to the work of your spirit through your word. Thank you, Jesus, for purchasing us by your blood, making us a kingdom and priests who serve our God. We long to reign with you on this earth. So may your name be exalted by our lips and in our hearts. Now and continuing, we pray. Amen.